With hundreds of books launching every day, competition for readers is tougher than it has ever been in history. For your book to stand out, it needs to stand out. And the quality of the writing is a key element of that. So what is critical for good writing? Good editing. Behind every successful author stands a team of editors who help ensure that author's success. But in the days of AI spell checkers and beta readers, do you still need an editor? Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> you already know you need an editor, though. Unfortunately, knowing you need an editor and knowing a good editor are two very different things. There are tens of thousands of professional editors out there. So how do you pick one? Where do you even find where the good ones are? And what kind of editor should you even look for? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. And I have a simple three-step process for you to find an amazing editor. So step one is to figure out what kind of editor you need. In order to find the right kind of editor for your book, you need to know about the four different kinds of editors. Yes, I used to say there's three kinds of editors, now there's four, and I've added a fourth branch of the military <laughs> to illustrate it. So the first kind of editor is an AI editor, and this would be equivalent to the Space Force. An AI editor helps you improve the quality of your writing as you write. It can also give you a big picture view of how ready your writing is. For example, an AI tool like authors.ai will tell you what your average words per sentence are, for instance. And the publishing rule of thumb is the shorter your sentences, the better your sales. Authors.ai checks for dozens of factors like this. So it's not just you know how many words per sentence, but how many adverbs you're using and lots of other kind of big picture elements like that. Knowing your sentences are too long is a bit like looking at a satellite picture of an enemy formation. It helps you know where you need to invest your time. That's where the Space Force comes in. Now, there's also AI editors like Grammarly and ProWritingAid. These help you improve your grammar, usage, and spelling as you write. And they're like a super spell checker or grammar tool. And I think every author should use an AI copywriter to help them improve their writing. But, and this is important... Using an AI copy editor does not replace the need for a human editor any more than the Space Force replaces the need for an actual Air Force. <laughs> Having a satellite picture of the ground does not replace the need for airplanes in the air. Having an AI copy editor catch some of the issues is not the same as a human catching everything. They also don't replace the need for you to educate yourself about the rules of grammar. You need to understand both the rules and the why behind the rules so that you can know when you should break the rules. Because when you break the rules is the key element of your voice. <laughs> and you don't want to break rules willy-nilly. That's a, having a bad voice. You want to have a good, clear voice, which means you break the rules on purpose. Or not, right? You don't have to break the rules, but you need to understand the why behind the rule. All right, so that's an AI editor. Now let's talk about a developmental editor. And all the editors from this point forward are going to be human. So a developmental editor is like the Air Force. This is your big picture. A developmental edit, sometimes called a content edit, is an edit of the ideas 
in your book. If it's nonfiction, it's an edit of the story if this were fiction. So back to the military metaphor. The Air Force is the ones who drops the bombs on the trenches or on the bunkers that makes it easier when the troops have to come in. They're the ones that take out the supply depots. Okay, so we're dealing with very big picture elements. Developmental editors usually insert comments into your documents and send you a long email of their general thoughts. So expect hundreds or even thousands of comments, but they don't typically have track changes turned on because they're not editing words. They're editing ideas. They're editing the big picture. Good developmental editors are expensive. And many indie authors skip hiring a developmental editor. And instead, they ask for a copy editor to give them developmental feedback. And this is a mistake. And it's actually why many indie books fail is because they take this shortcut. They feel like, oh, I'm I'm special. I, I don't need a developmental editor because I'm brilliant. Even though I've never sold any books before, I am the exception. I don't need a developmental editor. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Most books that fail to connect with readers fail because of developmental issues. Readers will forgive the occasional typo if the book scratches their itch. A developmental editor helps you turn the book into the kind of book that really scratches the reader's itch. Copy editors are typically not good at developmental editing. They don't know how to make the book really connect with the reader. They don't think that way. They think in terms of rules and compliance and in sentences and not in terms of what would this reader want that this other reader would not want and how do I make the book really thrill the specific kind of reader. Now, it's not uncommon to come across copy editors who think that they're good developmental editors and everybody will want to give you developmental feedback. <laughs> That's in some ways what a beta reader does, but that doesn't mean that they're a good developmental editor. So warning, using beta readers does not replace the need for a developmental editor. <laughs> Just like an AI copy editor doesn't replace the need for a human copy editor. A beta reader does not replace the need for developmental editors. Beta readers are great at pointing out problems, but they're not good at proposing solutions. So don't skimp on the developmental editing. So what should you look for in a developmental editor? Well, a sign of a good developmental editor is that they have an intake form with lots of questions for you to answer about your target reader. This is a sign of an editor who knows how to tweak a book to scratch the reader's itch. They also tend to have a lot of questions about your goals for the book. If a developmental editor doesn't ask any questions about what kind of reader you're writing for, run. They're a copy editor in disguise. <laughs> I love copy editors, but copy editors and developmental editors are very different. In fact, often developmental editors are fellow authors and it's not uncommon for them to be a fellow author with a successful book targeting your same target audience. You also want a developmental editor who's familiar with your specific genre and your genre expectations. In most micro genres, the best-selling books all share the same two or three developmental editors. It's kind of a secret of the industry, but there's a few super editors or best-selling editors that are the ones behind the hits. They don't help you with the marketing directly, right? It's not like you can say edited by so-and-so and then readers like, ooh, I want a book edited by this person. But readers gravitate to a book that kind of scratches the itch that they have in a certain way and they don't know that behind those books is all the same editor. All right, so that's the developmental editor, which is the Air Force. Now let's talk about the Marines, the folks landing on the beaches and facing the typos head-on, the copy editor. <laughs> 
I don't do a lot of military metaphors, but I like it for talking about editors. So the next kind of edit is the copy edit, also known as the line edit. This is an edit of the words. So once you're done with your developmental edit, you typically will switch to a different person who will do the copy edit. In this round of revisions, your editor will correct grammar mistakes, address usage issues such as passive voice, and fix typos. They will also suggest ways to shorten your sentences. Again, short sentences sell books. So while a developmental editor is inserting comments, a copy editor is typically using Microsoft Word's track changes feature because they're making lots of changes and they're inserting lots of commas. For me especially, I tend to be sloppy with my commas and so copy editors are constantly fixing my usage of commas and they're making specific changes to the sentences. When beginning authors talk about editors, the copy editor is usually what they have in mind. In fact, it's not uncommon for a a real brand new editor to think that the copy editor is the only kind of editor that there is. Just like somebody who doesn't know much about the military may think that the Marines are the only branch that matters. (laughs) And if you talk to a Marine, they are the only branch that matters. (laughs) And which is not uncommon if you talk to a copy editor. For a lot of copy editing, uh, genre familiarity is nice, but it's not as critical as you might think. A misspelled word is a misspelled word. And it's not like other than perhaps literary fiction, there's a kind of fiction that really attracts readers who love long, drawn out, complicated sentences. So what do you look for in a copy editor? Well, a good copy editor will help you develop a style for your book and potentially a glossary as well. For example, if you write epic fantasy, a copy editor will want a list of the correct spellings of all of your characters and place names. Because how do you spell Alethkar, right? If you want the copy editor to check for that, you need to have an official correct spelling of Alethkar. And also, in your style guide, what rules are you breaking on purpose and why? So when I wrote my book, I had certain rules I was going to break, certain words I was going to misspell or miscapitalize. I had reasons for that, and I had a style guide that all the editors had, and they were able to edit it in accordance with that style guide. Another thing you want to ask is what style guide the editor follows. So most copy editors use the Chicago Manual of Style. But if they use one of the others, like the AP Manual of Style, you'll want to know that from the jump. And and typically, you want to know which style guide you want to use. I recommend, when in doubt, use Chicago if you're writing American English. I think that's a pretty uh, safe one. There's a style guide in the UK and I don't remember what it's called. But that's another issue, right? You don't want to hire a UK copy editor who's using a UK style guide for an American audience, an American book. Because while they may speak the King's English over there, that's not what we speak over here. (laughs) And the grammar rules are a little bit different. Humorously, the Oxford comma, which is very popular amongst American editors and authors and is dictated in the Chicago Manual of Style, is not actually very popular in the UK, I learned, (laughs) especially not in Europe. So when Europeans write English, they don't use the Oxford comma, which was very confusing when I was ordering in Switzerland off the menu, because I would think more things were included based off their use of the comma. You want a copy editor who can help bring out your voice rather than edit your voice away. And they need to get you in your writing. And it's hard to put your finger on this. A mistake is a copy editor who's not trying to change your voice at all. You want a copy editor who helps you improve your voice. 
And so there's a push and pull here with your copy editor. I'll talk more about this in a second. But there's one other kind of editor we need to talk about, and that is the proofreader. And this is the army, if we're going to use our military metaphor. So the, the Marines are really good at attacking a position, but their doctrine is not great for holding a position from enemy attack. They can do it, but that's not really what they're designed for as a branch. The army, on the other hand, can attack and defend, and defending and holding a position is very much a part of their doctrine. And so what does this have to do with proofreading? Well, proofreading is like a second copy edit, and it's done on the typeset pages. So when you typeset pages, which is getting the words set just so, errors tend to enter the text during that process. So the proofreader is defending your otherwise clean manuscript from the new errors that snuck in. Also, errors that weren't obvious on you know, Microsoft Word with the words laid out the way Microsoft Word had them laid out once they're laid out in a PDF or once they're laid out in an EPUB, for some reason they become a little bit more obvious. So somebody who's a good copy editor typically is a good proofreader. Everyone that is, except for the copywriter you hired. <laughs> You're like, why not the one I hired to do the copy editing? Because they did the copy editing and they're already starting to expect what the words should be. The more you edit a document, the more you get blind to the errors. And so I recommend bringing in a different copy editor to do the proofreading one more set of eyes will catch more issues. It's the same problem that you have looking at your you know, third revision. You can't see the errors. And a copy editor, after they spent too much time with your book, can't see the errors that they've missed. You know, They found all the ones they can find, so you get somebody else to do the proofreading. Another difference between proofreading and copy editing is that the proofreader can't do track changes because by the time you're proofreading it, you're looking at a PDF. So you typically get a punch list with these really terrible instructions like the third paragraph on page six is missing a comma before the word but. So it's a real hassle to fix the issues that proofreaders point out. Sometimes they'll annotate a PDF and that can work a little bit better, but it's still way more hassle than clicking accept on track changes. And so you want to do as much copy editing as you can. You always find things in the proofreading. <laughs> it's, it's, it's inevitable. You know, we really do need the Army. We don't just have the Marines. But the better of, of a job you did kind of initially clearing out the typos and, and mistakes, the easier of a job you'll have with the proofreading. So those are the different kinds of editors. And so you may be wondering, so which kind of editor do I need? And the answer is, you need all of them. <laughs> don't. A skimp here. If you need to get a job, get a job. If you need to do a Kickstarter, do a Kickstarter. But if you want excellence, editors are really critical. There's really no way around it. No, There's no author that I know of that's so good that they don't need an editor. In fact, the better the author gets, the more vibrant their interaction with the editor becomes because they become more fluent and they can actually get better edits back and they can work with their editor in a better way. All right, so that's step one, identifying what kind of editor you need. So start with the AI editors, do as much as you can yourself, then bring in a developmental editor, then bring in a copy editor, and finally bring in a proofreader. So step two is to recruit editors. And when I say editors here, I mean multiple editors, because step three, spoiler alert, is to hold a tryout. <laughs> but let's talk about where to find good editors. There's a lot of places to find good editors, and I'll go through all the different kinds of places to look for. But there's one 
absolute best place to find the absolute best editors. And, and this is like the golden secret of this whole episode. If you just do this one thing, you're going to really get an advantage. To find the best editors, look in the acknowledgments of the best books. That's it. So if you want a New York Times bestselling editor, take that New York Times bestselling book, open it up to either the end or the beginning, you'll find an acknowledgment section. Most authors will share the name of their editor. So then what do you do? Well, you take their name and you Google it. So a lot of editors, even editors working for traditional publishing houses, do freelance editing on the side. Sometimes they'll have their prices right there on their website, which you'll find from Googling it. Sometimes they'll have a LinkedIn profile and you have to reach out to them and say, hey, I'm looking for an editor for a book. I saw that you edited such and such book. I thought it was really good. Can you send me your rate sheet? And most editors <laughs> will be like, sure, here's here's what I charge and here's how far out booked I am. Sometimes they'll be like, yeah, I'm happy to work with you, but I'm booked out for the next six months or what have you. So if you're wanting to work with the really best editors, you have to realize they can't start on your book tomorrow, right? They're the best. They're in demand. It's not a secret that they're this good. <laughs> so you have to wait and you have to, you know, grab your spot in line. And sometimes authors will grab their spot in line while they're still writing the book if they're in a hurry. But just realize that sometimes there's some waiting involved. And this is actually where impatient authors often ruin their book because they're in too much of a hurry to work with the good editor. So they start working with the editors who aren't as good. And the more of a beginner you are, the more experienced of an editor you want to work with. You don't want to, for your very first book, work with an editor who's editing their very first book. Because it's the blind leading the blind at that point. <laughs> if you're an experienced author, maybe then you can work with a less experienced editor. And you're bringing your experience to the relationship. Somebody's got to have some experience if you want to have a quality book. But the acknowledgments of best-selling books is not your only option. So what's another option? Well, authormedia.social. I have a job board on authormedia.social. You can post editing jobs there. And many of my listeners have found an editor to work with through the job board. And uh, what's nice is that you can look and see how many badges they have on authormedia.social, how well integrated they are with the author media community, how many courses they've taken. And there's no cost to you or the editor. So if you're an editor looking for work, you can say, hey, I do editing. I specialize in this kind of editing or this kind of book. And you may have authors reach out to you. Or if you're an author, you say, hey, here's my book. I'm looking for an editor. And you'll have a bunch of editors, you know, leave comments being like, hey, I'm, I'm interested. Another place to find editors is at writers conferences. Conferences tend to be packed with editors looking for clients. Uh, in fact, many of the faculty members at uh, most conferences also edit on the side. And in fact, many of the authors uh, who are there will moonlight as freelance editors. But more than that, attending a writer's conference also helps you make friends with other authors, which can lead to recommendations and introductions uh, to editors. So some editors will only work with somebody if they're introduced, right? Somebody vouches <laughs> for them. Another place you can find editors is that matchmaking websites, websites like Readsy, Upwork, and Fiverr. These are kind of like an online job board crossed with a dating site. You can post a project and you'll get people to apply. And they're very upfront about how much they charge. <laughs> so Readsy is specifically designed for authors. Upwork is kind of the class A freelancer hiring platform. And Fiverr is kind of the budget freelancer hiring platform. But 
Fiverr still has quality editors. You'll find editors all up and down the board. The cheapest editors on both Fiverr and Upwork are not going to be native English speakers. So just keep that in mind. I recommend working with a native English speaker for editing. That's one of the few things where being a native speaker really benefits. <laughs> Your use of the English language as an editor needs to be you know, top shelf. There's also some guilds that you can look for editors from. There's the editor Editorial Freelancers Association, the Christian Editor Connection, and the Society for Editing. I'll have links to all these places, and I might even have an affiliate link for Fiverr Readsy. I'll have to check if I have affiliate links for those. All right, so you found some editors. You've reached out to them. Uh, what do you do next? Well, the next thing you do is hold a tryout. So you're building a team of editors, and just like with building a sports team, you need to try out your players, so to speak. A tryout will give you much better insight into who is good rather than conducting interviews. Interviews are notoriously terrible for hiring, especially for hiring hard skill jobs like editing. If you depend on interviews, you'll most likely end up hiring someone like you or someone that you like, someone you connect with on an emotional level. And none of that is useful. This is not a marriage. It's not even somebody that you're working with day in and day out. They don't have to be your friend. They just need to make your book better. So hold a tryout instead and hire the most talented candidate, not the one with the silver tongue. Some editors will offer to edit a few pages for free and others will ask for a small editing fee, right, to, to participate in a tryout. There are some authors, I'll say authors of low moral character, who will take advantage of these free pages. And instead of hiring an editor, to edit their book, they'll have, you know, 20 editors or 50 editors all do the free pages. And I think that's a really bad practice. In fact, I dislike that practice so much. I actually think you should pay and I think you should do a whole chapter. So you pay them to edit chapter one. And the key here is that you have each of the editors trying out, right? You have three or four editors. They, they each get paid whether you hire them to do the rest of the book or not. That way they're not wasting their time and you're being serious and you're honoring the work that they're putting in. And right, even if you go with editor number two and, and you really like the work that editor number two did and you want her to do the whole book, if editor three points out some things editor two missed, you don't feel bad about also including <laughs> that feedback since you paid editor three for the work uh, that she did. So the most important thing about the tryout is that they all edit the same chapter or selection of pages. This way you can compare the edits to each other, right? You want to make this as good as possible because it's also you're trying out for them because some editors will give you a rate for the editing based off of how clean your writing is. So the worse your writing is, the more they're going to charge you. So don't insert typos just to see if they catch them. <laughs> That's not how this works. But when they're all editing the same thing, you can compare the edits to each other. And you also want to make it very clear up front what kind of edit that you're looking for. So if some editors come in thinking you're wanting a developmental edit and others are coming in thinking you're wanting a copy edit, then it's unfair to the ones who misunderstood. And so while you're looking over those sample edits, you want to ask yourself these questions. Who spotted issues that everyone else missed? Which editor gave you the most useful feedback, right? Because it's one thing to point out a problem. It's another thing to propose a solution. And it's another thing to propose the best solution. <laughs> Who gets you best? Who gets your story best, right? It doesn't matter 
who got you best in the conversation and made you feel great about your book. Because there's a lot of snake oil salesmen in this industry who will make you feel really good about your book. That's not what you want. You don't want to feel good about your book. You want your book to actually be good, objectively. <laughs> Which means that they need to show that they get your book the best. Not by doing a good job in the interview, but by doing a good job on the edit where you're like, yes. Oh my gosh, this is so much better. Thank you so much. And authors who do go through this process love their editors because the editors are making their books so much better. If you feel like you're having an antagonistic relationship with your editor or your editors make you feel bad, you got the wrong editor <laughs> because the editors are trying to make you look good and that should make you happy. Who doesn't want to look good? You also want to ask, you know, who gets your story best and who found the most areas for improvement? So if you're asking those questions as you look over the edits, it should be pretty clear and you know, one of the editors will jump out at you. If you're doing a tryout for the copy edits and there's two copy editors that are both really good, you can hire one to do the copy edit and hire the other to do the proofreading. That's okay. But I do think the developmental editors need to come from a different pool. While there are, are a few magical editors that are theoretically good at both, it's hard to find them. Most of the editors I've talked to are like, yeah, I'm really more of a developmental editor. You don't want to hire me for copy edits or the other way around. So how much does an editor cost, right? Because the tryout is an opportunity for you to get some bids. <laughs> some editors charge the same price to everyone. They have their rates right on their website. Typically, they charge per word, right? Because, you know, they're not going to charge the same for a 100,000-word book as they would for a 50,000-word book. Others will give you a quote based off of how good your writing is. And the price can vary quite a bit. Anywhere from $500 to $10,000, depending on how in demand the editor is, and what kind of edit that you're getting. So if you're wanting an editor who's edited books that have sold millions of copies, New York Times bestselling author level editor, you're going to pay more money because they're better, right? If you want Patrick Stewart to read your audiobook, it's going to cost more money than a regular audiobook narrator who's going to cost more money than a beginner, right? It's the same in editing. Now, you don't have to go with the celebrity editor for your book to be successful, right? Every editor had to do a best-selling book first, right? So you're, you don't have to hire somebody who has done it already to be successful, but you need to uh, hire somebody who has the capacity <laughs> to do it. They need to be good enough, right? So just because they haven't won a championship yet, they need to be championship caliber. As a general rule, developmental edits cost more than copy edits, which cost more than proofreading. So if you want to save some money, here's how to do it. Spend a couple hundred dollars paying for the paid version of Grammarly if you write nonfiction or ProWritingAid if you write fiction. These tools will help you clean up your writing, clean up a lot of the grammatical issues, and they can potentially save you way more than you spent for them on the copy edit once you get your bids in. The fewer things the humans need to fix, the less you have to pay. And I have a whole blog and episode about AI tools for writers that goes into more details of the AI tools that you can use to improve your writing, which can potentially save you money with the editor. All right, so let's talk about some common mistakes authors make when hiring an editor. The first mistake is hiring the first editor you find. <laughs> uh, so when authors are just starting out, they often don't know very many people in the industry. And if this is you, an easy mistake to make is to hire the first editor you meet. Even if they're the one, you want to talk to other editors so that you can know that the first one is the one. 
Because how do you know if they're any good if you don't have anything to compare it to? The more editors you get to know, the better of an idea you can figure out who's right for you. Because just because somebody's a good editor doesn't mean they're a good editor for you. They may not know your genre. They may not know your target audience. And this is why I really recommend having a tryout because it forces you to find at least three editors for the competition. And then it gives you something to compare. The next mistake that you want to avoid is hiring your friend. (laughs) Don't hire your friend with an English degree to edit your book. This is like hiring a handyman to build you a new home. (laughs) If you want to be a professional author, you need to maintain professional relationships with the professionals you work with. If you hire a friend, then you will have to fire your friend, right? No professional relationship lasts forever. And now you've complicated things because they're your friend, right? Or they're hurting your feelings or you're hurting their feelings. So my great-grandfather was a business professor at UT, had a really strict rule about not being friends with employees. And each generation since his generation has softened the boundaries between employer and employees. And it's interesting to me that each generation has fewer total friends than the generation before. I think there may be some wisdom to my great-grandfather's rule. I think we threw out those rules about keeping colleagues colleagues and keeping friends friends and keeping a healthy separation between work and play. Because if you're an employee and all your friends are at work, then your employer has a lot of power over you because you getting fired or laid off is now not just you losing your job, but also you losing your social network. And that's that's too much power. You don't want to give someone that much power over you. That doesn't mean you're not friendly. Right. But there's a big difference between being friendly with your coworkers or your colleagues and you sleeping on their couch. <laughs> All right. So there's a lot more I could say there, but, I, but I'm not. Don't hire a friend. Hire a professional. Be a professional if you want a professional book. The next mistake is not holding a tryout. I see you thinking that you're the exception and you don't need to do a tryout. And it seems awkward. Editors don't mind doing the sample. And some of the editors, after doing the sample, will back out themselves, right? This is a, it's like a first date. You're seeing if you're a good fit for each other. And typically, professional editors, when they back out, they won't be like, oh, you're too terrible. You know, I don't want to work with you. What they'll say is, I don't think I'm the right fit for you. Here's another editor I know who I think would be a better fit for you. And that's really good. I would take that recommendation very seriously because, you know, it's kind of like a physician. You go to your doctor and you say, oh, sorry, doc, I'm sick. I need help with such and such. And they're like, oh, you need to talk to the specialist, this other physician that I know who specializes in the specific ailment that you have. Right? Listen to your doctor when they say that <laughs> and then go talk to the specialist. And if an editor says you need to talk to another editor, you want to listen. The one exception to not holding a tryout, because there is one exception, and that is if you're writing a series of books and you had a winning team on the last book and you want to use that same team of editors on the next book, don't make them try out again. (laughs) Just use the same folks over again. And this is actually really common. Once you find the editors that you like, you tend to keep them. And the editor-author relationship can go on for decades in some cases. In fact, some authors will take editors with them from publishing house to publishing house in some cases because the dirty little secret is that most editors work freelance even when they're working on traditionally published books and it's not uncommon for traditional publishers to bring in specific editors for specific projects because in some ways hiring an editor is kind of like hiring a director for a film or an actor for a movie you need this the right one <laughs> they need to fit right when you're casting a film who you pick really affects the tone and the feel and the rest of it 
And traditional publishers realize this. And if you're independently publishing, you're your own casting director. So you want to make sure you're hiring the right developmental editor and the right copy editor. And this can be a really beneficial long-term professional relationship. And when I say, you know, don't be friends with them, that doesn't mean you don't send them a Christmas card or that you don't, you know, send them a, you know, a fruit basket when they do a really good job. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, stay professional. (laughs) Uh, Don't sleep on their couch. The next mistake is hiring the cheapest editor you can find, right? You've just invested years of your life into this book. It deserves a good editor, not the very cheapest editor. And I will say the cheapest editors often don't speak English as a first language, which really does have a negative impact on their editing. Now, somebody who's a native English speaker from another country that has a different style guide can edit American English if they know the Chicago Manual of Style sufficiently. So my comments earlier about, you know, British editors, if the British editor is an expert in the Chicago Manual of Style, I would say that's a perfectly good editor, but they need to have the Chicago Manual of Style deep in their bones. <laughs> and they're still a native English speaker. I, I think that's fine. Uh, the next mistake people make with their editors is not listening. This is one of the most tragic things in publishing is paying money to hire a professional and then ignoring that professional advice. This is worse than not hiring the professional in the first place because you still are not using the useful advice and you're out the money you spent on the professional. That's no good. If you're going to hire an editor, listen to the editor. But the next mistake is listening blindly. So so there's two sides to this coin and you can listen to your editor too much. Your editor is not God. Your editor is not infallible. If you just accept all changes in your document, you will be accepting a few changes that make the book worse. And often the editor will point out a problem. And once you see the problem, you're like, oh, that's not what I meant to say. Or it'll take you off in a different direction in solving it. So you may not go with their solution. So it's important to go through the edits. You have to, obviously, with a developmental edit, because you can't just accept a comment. (laughs) But even with a copy edit, I wouldn't accept all changes. Even if you end up accepting them all, it's good for you as an author to look at each one and understand why the editor made the suggestion. And if you don't understand, ask. Understanding the reason behind the change will help you know what you want to implement and it will help you get better as a writer. Remember, the carpenter doesn't just build the house. The house builds the carpenter. And working with a professional editor is a really great opportunity to become better really fast. And if you, as, as you talk with other authors and interact with them, they'll often you know, talk about their first encounter with an editor being this like transformative experience. Uh, sometimes a bit like bracing. because they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I thought I was a better author than I was. And I didn't realize how much I still had to learn. But man, working with that editor, my writing was so much better as a result, you know, even though it was tough to go through all those track changes or whatever. But I want to underline this again. Hiring an editor does not replace the need for you to master the fundamentals of writing. The better of a writer you are, the more productive your interactions with the editor will be. If you don't know what your editor means when she says passive protagonist, show don't tell, or resist the urge to explain, then you need to keep reading books on craft until you do. (laughs) Because editors don't write the book for you. You really do have to understand and have mastered craft yourself. And then the final mistake that people make when hiring an editor is not hiring an editor. (laughs) So I want to close on this because I want to say it again. You need an editor. James Patterson has an editor. J.K. Rowling 
has an editor. Dave Ramsey has an editor. Malcolm Gladwell has an editor. These authors have sold billions of books and they still have to work with teams of human editors to clean up, improve, and hone their writing. You are not the exception. So if you want to compete with the best-selling authors, you need to do what the best-selling authors do. That means hiring and working with professional editors. And if you're wanting to connect with other authors and other editors, I encourage you to check out my free social network for authors, authormedia.social. Yes, we have the job board there where you can post a job, but there's also a general discussion, a craft discussion, a publishing discussion. And unlike Facebook or Twitter, which have an unlimited scroll, you can see everything there is to see on authormedia.social in 15 minutes or less. So there's always something new to see there, but there's never an overwhelming amount of new content there, which is really nice. So where can you find authormedia.social? Well, in your browser, just go to www.authormedia.social. The name of the website is the address. So it's not a .com, it's a .social. It's authormedia.social. Our featured patron today is Eloise White, author of Soul Inspirations. You'll gain a new relationship with Jesus as you trust him to be your confidant, healer, and life-giving friend. Eloise White, thank you so much for your support and keeping the Novel Marketing Podcast on the air. And thank you to all of you who are patrons supporting the podcast. Uh, Don't forget, you get a bonus patrons-only episode every month that I record live. So if you have a question you'd like to ask, if you want to pick my brain, you can. Just attend the next live patrons only episode. And if you want to become a patron, you can. You just go to authormedia.com slash patron to find out more about supporting the Novel Marketing Podcast. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Lori Christine, audio engineering by William Umstadt, and the blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read that blog version and to find links to all the different things I talked about today, go to authormedia.com slash 349. That's right. Our next episode is going to be episode 350. I'm Tom Sumset Jr., your host, saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.